This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we have the return of a very great guest and a great friend, someone to whom I am eternally grateful for three reasons. More than three, but these are the main three. He published Solving the Communion Enigma, The Key, and Supernatural, the book I wrote with Jeff Kripal on at on Tartar Penguin and did a wonderful job with our books. I welcome Mitch Horowitz back to Dreamland. Let me tell you a little bit about Mitch. Aside, aside from the fact that he's an incredibly cool guy, which you can see just by the look of him, uh, he is, uh, gosh, Mitch has done so much. He is an describes himself as a historian of alternative spirituality. And that's not all of it. He is not just a historian. He is, uh, well, he's something else. We'll try to figure out what that is during the course of the show, and it'll be fun. Outsider history, uh, the relevance of it to our lives. And we're all very interested in outsider history here. Uh, he is the lecturer in residence at the Philosophical Research Society in uh, Los Angeles. That's uh, Manley Hall's organization. Uh, he is the author of Occult America, which we've talked about on Dreamland, on and One Simple Idea, which we've also talked about, how positive thinking reshaped modern life, and The Miracle Club. We've talked about that, too. And we haven't talked about the miracle habits. We should talk about that. But today, we're talking about the book he has just published, Uncertain Places. It is a wild and wonderful trip. We're going into the into tunnels beneath the Valley of the Kings. We're going deep into witchcraft. Today, we're going just about everywhere Nobody else ever goes. And welcome to Dreamland, Mitch. I'm so glad you're here. Delighted to be here. Thank you, Whitley. Wonderful to see you. Oh, we're going to have a wonderful time. I can hardly wait. Where shall I start? <laughs> Uncertain places is a journey and a half, boy. All right. Okay, let's start with UFOs. I've got z zillions of notes, as you may know. Right. Uh, my listeners know that I'm one of those one of the few people in this field who actually reads the books, and I'm, I do it very seriously. And, and anyway, even if I didn't read the books, if it was your book, I certainly would read it. You say, we talk, well, first of all, let's talk about the change in the UFO phenomenon. There's been a huge cultural change here. Yes. You tell us a little bit about that, and then I'll ask you a few more questions about it. For me, the cultural change began, I think, in the summer, late summer of 2019. Uh, there was a panel hosted at the Guggenheim Museum here in New York City, which is home to me, on the UFO uh, question with uh, Gordon White and Diana Pasalka. And uh, the room was packed. Uh, the auditorium was just filled to standing capacity. And afterwards, the curator said to me, at what point do you think that denial 
of the UFO thesis is going to become intellectually embarrassing. And I just looked at him at that moment and said, you know, honestly, I think we've hit that point right at this instant, right now. Uh, there's no serious person aside from a few dogmatic skeptics. And, you know, for them, it's almost a matter of, of, of a guild mentality uh, who would deny the absolute validity of the UFO thesis as a question of, of urgency and is something that can't be ascribed to uh, accident, misreported, swamp gas, imagination, somebody having too much to drink, whatever. You know, we've heard it all. And that school of thought, the UFO denialist school of thought, I suppose is as uh, bygone at this point as we're speaking now in, in late uh, 2022 as uh, climate change denialism, for example, you know, and that position was was very much alive 18 months ago. That's changed. Uh, so we are in a new place in our culture where UFOs are entirely mainstream. And to those of us who have been following the phenomena for decades, that can seem so long in coming that it's almost like a yawn. But I can remember with vividness just a few years ago where it would be unthinkable for mainstream news outlets like the New Yorker or the New York Times to take seriously the UFO question. And today, uh, its opposite is impossible. Well, you know, that leads me to another question, uh, which is essentially, what about us? Because if UFOs are here, then there's millions of us who have had close encounter experiences. And I have to ask you, is someone coming out of them and taking us into them or not? And you say in the book that you don't see them as an occult um, phenomenon. And I think you're right to say that. But there's something way off here. Yeah. Because it, it bleeds off, as you know so well, having read uh, and edited Supernatural, it bleeds off into areas that we think of as the occult when you get closer sure. to it. And it, those two areas may increasingly converge. My definition of the occult is belief in an unseen dimension of existence whose forces can be felt on and through us. Now, uh, the UFO question remains as wide open as ever. And the two primary, I think, points of inquiry are uh, extraterrestrial versus interdimensional. I lean towards the interdimensional only because our current models of reality, it seems to me, do more to support it. We can figure out ways that objects can travel extraordinary distances, like through what we call cosmic wormholes or something of that nature. But we're further along the road, it seems to me, especially through quantum mechanics and through models of reality like string theory, of not only understanding more about the question of interdimensionality, but I would say since the 1950s, uh, interdimensionality is almost a logical imperative. Uh, there's so much in quantum theory that, that could be talked about from the Schrodinger's cat experiments up through the many worlds theory, which I find absolutely compelling and has remained so for 60 some odd years. Um, it seems to me that we face a logical imperative in acknowledging interdimensionality. And once we've made that acknowledgement, it stands to reason that not only are there other intelligent beings, but there, there must be, and they're going to take other and varying forms. And these things are as real as the floorboards beneath my feet. Uh, but 
they also may be things that with our ordinary senses, most of the time, we're not able to readily detect. And yet we do seem to travel among intersections of time. We know that, for example, from uh, precognition research within academic uh, parapsychology. And once you open that lid, once you determine, for example, or provide statistical evidence, we'll say, uh, in a laboratory setting, that the psyche is capable of traveling between intersections of time, again, you start to knock at the door of an imperative of the individual encountering experiences, beings, intelligences from these different intersections of time, which may not be visible to me at 2.30 in the afternoon on a Tuesday, but may suddenly become visible to me at a certain moment, as has happened to you, as has happened to many of your listeners as has happened to thousands upon thousands of people uh, whose letters you and Anne uh, cultivated and, and, and personally responded to in many instances. And right. it seems to me that if the UFO thesis starts to travel more and more in the direction of interdimensionality, um, then what we call the occult and the UFO thesis begin to converge and we're gonna need a new vocabulary because we're going to start to have to talk about this in a way that is encompassing uh, historically and of a vast range of experiences that go by different names. Because we have had in human life a such an extraordinary uh, journey with someone else, it, not just here, not, and since uh, the UFO phenomenon began to be noticed, but for a long, long time, you know, free dreamlanders speaking of a long, long time, I wish you didn't have to spend a long, long time with these commercials, but you do. And we'll be right back. We're back. We're talking to Mitch Horowitz, his website, MitchHorowitz.com, his new book, uncertain places. That is to say, it's this 50,000 word or 50,000 page book because it's about everything and everywhere. Just kidding. It's not 50,000 pages. It's about what? About 300 pages. It's a normal book. But my point is this all places are uncertain places. And it's a wonderful journey through Mitch's experience of those uncertain places. And I want to go to one of them now. Uh, Mitch also is the has a documentary that's been out since January that's absolute dynamite called The Kabbalion, K-Y-B-A-L-I-O-N. And you can get it anywhere. I, I got it myself on Amazon. I you had to go I had to go to the Amazon website and buy it, and then it streamed over Amazon Prime. But you can probably buy it on YouTube or any any. It's not it's non critical to buy it, and uh, I don't recall what it cost, but it wasn't much. It was like five dollars or something, three dollars, four dollars, I think. Anyway, it's way 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 cool, and I want you to talk a little bit about the Valley of the Kings and what lies beneath. Oh, that's something I read about in Uncertain Places. There are extraordinary chambers underneath the Valley of the Kings that are 
preserved almost to the extent that they were when our ancient ancestors in Egypt were setting eyes on them. They are fully colorized uh, chambers, uh, passageways, uh, places of worship, crypts, um, ceremonial centers, and the statuary and the base reliefs that appear beneath the Valley of Kings Whitley, they are as as brilliantly colorized as anything that you would look upon with your own eyes today in the 21st century. It's not always easy to enter these places. You have to pay extra. And, you know, I mean, there's um, how shall I put this? You know, you, you, as as Gurdjieff said, if you have to grease the wheels if you want the cart to go. So you have to <laughs> grease the wheels. And I wish it were something that everybody could lay lay eyes on. We were fortunate enough to be able to lay eyes on these things. And there was a, a guide um, in one of these chambers who invited me to lay my hands on the enormous life-size uh, base relief of a bull. And I hesitated because I take seriously the preservation of antiquities. And if people are trapezing through these places and touching things... Uh, over generations, they're going to get damaged and they're going to get destroyed. And I care about that very much. But I was being offered a gift and I decided to accept this gift. And I uh, laid hands on this base relief of a bull. And all I can say, and I'm not one who experiences a lot of phenomena, I just felt electricity shoot through my body, light shoot through my body. It was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. And such things give you a glimpse, perhaps, of what some of the ancients experienced. You know, Linda Moulton Howe had a similar experience on the island of Patmos in the cavern of St. John uh, and of touching the wall and, and having that electrical energy come through. That energy is the earth, the life. It is life itself. And I felt it a lot, too, in different situations. Mm -hmm. And not there. I would love to be there and to do that. But again, you're right. Placing your hands on that was a great privilege. And I'm not sure that it should be extended to many people. Uh, and so I probably wouldn't ask if I was in those in, in there simply because I felt the energy elsewhere already. Yes. You see what I mean? In other words, I, yes. I would take that. Yes. But, um, tell us a little bit more about, you know, the interesting thing is that, that when Taurus was, Taurus the bull, that was, um, that was before, that was before um, we had Pisces. And then prior to Pisces, we had uh, the ram. Yes. And then prior to that, the bull. Yes. Yes. So it was a, that that represents something from a very very long time ago. Yes. In fact, if you abide by the precession of the equinoxes, you could say arguably that spring begins with the bull going back 26,000 years ago or something close to it. Uh yeah. in the way that, you know, the the equinoxes will will precess through uh different signs based on the wobble of the earth's axis. Uh so if the spring equinox occurred in Taurus, it, it, it probably would have been close to 26,000 years ago. 
And the bull, of course, is the, is the representative of strength in the sphinx. Yes. The haunches of the bull are the strength, uh, which is repeated again in the in, in various ways in many other areas in the tarot. For one, uh, I think I'm, my little book, The Path, which you considered publishing, but I I didn't. We didn't get a chance to get to it. Right. Uh, uh, we talk about the, the the various beasts of the sphinx and. And if that, I may, I wanted to, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't no, no, go, please, please. You know, one thing I wanted to mention, since we're talking about deepest antiquity, um, one of the things that I touch on in the book is I'm very sympathetic uh, to what's sometimes called the Shock West thesis, uh, referencing the Egyptologists, uh, Robert M. Shock and the now deceased John Anthony West. Um, many years ago, this goes back to the 1980s, uh, through on-site investigation, they detected uh, water damage on the oldest portion of the Sphinx that would have predated the antiquity of Egyptian civilization um, by several thousand years. Uh, you know, strictly speaking, if we go by the conservative timeline, what we refer to as ancient Egypt would be would go back to let's say 3,500 BC. But the Shock West thesis, uh, to which I'm sympathetic, holds that. Water damage on the oldest portion of the Sphinx would predate Egyptian civilization to 7,500 or 10,000 BC, and there are possibilities that it's a good deal older than that. I'm very sympathetic to that thesis for a variety of reasons, and having visited Egypt recently, one of the things that I realize is that for the Egyptian public, uh, this kind of thing is very, very sensitive, as is the ancient aliens thesis, because members of the Egyptian public feel as though... Um, either the ancient alien thesis or the shock west thesis, the predating of the monuments, will somehow, uh, how can I put it, will compromise a sense of Egyptian uh, national identity. And that's a very sensitive political and cultural issue in Egypt today. But from my perspective, predating these monuments only deepens our awe for Egyptian civilization. It in no way displaces um, the Egyptian public's a very just and very proud um, sense of custodianship. It only deepens it. It only deepens it. And it's, it's really tough to research some of these issues because of these uh, political and cultural sensitivities. You know, some people have asked me over the years, why are archaeologists uh, not probing, for example, the Shock West thesis. And there are a variety of issues there. One of the issues is absolute denialism, a kind of anti-intellectual smash Galileo's telescope uh, denialism, where uh, questioning uh, the timeline of standard antiquity would be academically endangering to people who have abided their careers by that timeline. So you have politics uh, in the West, and then, to some extent, you have politics in Egypt, where depending upon who is in charge of antiquities, these inquiries are seen as displacing Egyptian antiquity. And, and as far as that argument goes, I'm sympathetic to it. And, and it doesn't, there doesn't need to be a, a, a fight there. There doesn't need to be a struggle there. Uh, the question of Egypt's antiquity only deepens the custodianship uh, of the Egyptian people. Okay, we're going to take another brief break for our free Dreamlanders. Uh, so free Dreamlanders, enjoy these commercials, and we'll be right back. 
We're talking to Mitch Horowitz, his website, MitchHorowitz.com, his new book, Uncertain Places, some of which he has been to, many of which he has been to. Mitch, uh, I want to go now to the some other material. We've been talking about the distant past. Maybe we should keep on with that a little bit because you have some fascinating material in it about the old gods the old gods and are they lonely are they longing for us and if so then what are they tell us about the old gods and your vision of them well i'm very interested in primeval worship and every human civilization across the globe from polynesia to siberia has recorded relationships with greater intelligences. Uh, sometimes, frequently, these were petitionary relationships. And you find a remarkable and yet converging uh, panoply of deities, gods, in ancient civilizations from the world over. And we in the West think in terms of the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and monotheism is so baked into our culture that it seems almost in absolute. And yet, in fact, monotheism, as we know it, has existed for only a tiny sliver of human civilization. And we look at the ancients and we've inherited so many of their ideas, mathematics, engineering, agriculture, drama, moral parables, psychological insights as told in myth and so forth. And yet a facet of their lives that was absolutely essential to everyday existence was forming relationships uh, with deities. And we have fragments, threads that have come down to us from those practices. And I, as a seeker, have been very eager, uh, especially over these past several years, to take up these threads and experiment with these things. It's a wonderful experiment. And with respect to the old gods being lonely, if one can accept the idea of there being an intelligence that we would consider extra physical at this point in our human development, this language may require revising sometime in the future. Maybe it'll require revising sometime in our own generation. But if we consider the prospect of extra physical intelligences based on our current development. Well, it stands to reason that you can't have intellect without emotion. You can't have ethics without emotion. What else are ethics but a codification of empathy? No empathy, no ethics. And if these intelligences have emotions, then it stands to reason that like the rest of us, they can feel loneliness. And this has been the state of affairs of humanity for the last slight sliver of our history. And I think it's a propitious possibility for the individual to explore whether forming or seeking a petitionary relationship with a deity, maybe one from the ancient pantheon, uh, could be very powerful in a person's life. It has been in mine. Well, tell us more. Well, one of the 
experiments that I've done, Whitley, that's probably the most controversial part of my career, and this is something I write about extensively in uncertain places, has been experimenting with the force that we in the Abrahamic traditions uh, called, call Satan, which of course we see as the embodiment of everything that is evil, that is maleficent, that is violent. I have a completely different esoteric reading of that, and it's not unprecedented. The romantic poets and dramatists did not see the figure of Satan that way. And by um, talking specifically about um, William Blake, Lord Byron, Percy Bysshe Shelley, they saw the force of the satanic as a not quite metaphorical force of usurpation, individuality, emancipation, self-expression, rebelliousness. I have been hugely influenced by the vision of the romantics, as well as things that I encountered as a little kid uh, growing up in a traditional Jewish household. I had an Orthodox bar mitzvah and the the, the, the energy of which I'm speaking as it appears uh, in the Old Testament is not necessarily a maleficent energy. It is an energy with which the ancient Hebrews, for example, when they were wandering in the desert, saw and understood as a part of life. There was a figure in the desert who went by the name, the scriptural name of Azazel, a name that is read out in synagogues in Yom Kippur. And Azazel was a figure who coexisted in the desert with the Hebrews, with whom they had a morally neutral relationship. And I have gotten very interested in kind of peeling back the layers of the onion and asking whether we in the West have an excessively polarized and calcified idea of this energy called the satanic that you might find in scripture starting in Genesis 3 with the so-called snake in the garden and then proceeds up through different books. And it was only, of course, centuries later, centuries later, post-biblical, that all this got codified into a kind of either-or, black-and-white, binary, uh, evil force. I don't see it that way. I think that's been a misunderstanding in the West's reading of its own history. And that's something I've been very intimately experimenting with. You know, I have had in my life, all of my adult life, and I suspect in my childhood too, a lot of experience with with entities that I would consider to be very dark. Mm -hmm. And in particular, recently, it's been ferocious. But instead of calling them demons, which they certainly, I mean, they certainly fit that description. I'm not talking about the visitors, folks. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about physical entities that are the ones that cause the explosions outside of my apartment. My listeners know more about this than you do, I'm sure. But uh, suffice to say that I've been through a lot lately. And what has happened, there's been an intrusion into the apartment. There's been an attack on the website. And all of it has a very sinister quality, more than a normal. In other words, it wasn't a normal hacker. And it wasn't a normal entry into the apartment. Uh, But what I have learned is that if I take this one way, I can say that I'm under attack by evil. If I take it another way, I can use it as a learning experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think, is that kind of what you're talking about? Well, yes and no. I, I, look, 
on the scale of the human psyche, I would describe evil as as spite. I think we have a polarity in the human psyche between uh, empathy and spite. So speaking in terms of the psyche, I don't want to consort with forces of of spite, uh, 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 which is to say beings that, that cause pain as an, as an end to itself. And we see this in the human race. I mean, you know, just go on Twitter as soon as the show is over and, you know, you'll see all kinds of people who regard themselves as good, upstanding people who act out of, out of spite, who, who, who derive a, a thrill from insulting or hurting other people. And they do so all day long. The troll um, patrol, right? The troll patrol. And, you know, they are persuaded, of course, as everyone is who throws a rock, that they're throwing a rock for some good reason. Very, very rarely true. So I don't want to consort. I'm not interested in consorting uh, with forces of, of spite or maleficence. I'm interested in consorting with forces that tear open our idea of limitations, which is to me is what the snake in the garden was. Uh, you have our parabolic figures of Adam and Eve in the garden who are kind of like kept pets in an aquarium. And standing in this garden are two trees or possibly one tree, uh, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they can eat from every tree in the garden, except for the one that will actually give them measurement, except for the one that will actually give them awareness, except for the one that will actually give them the power of creativity. And with creativity comes friction. And that is part of the human tragedy. That is part of the paradox that we have to live within. We can forge jewelry or we can forge weapons, and they're both done by the same chemical processes, more or less, heating metals. And so it seems to me that the parabolic snake in the garden represents that energy of Radical selfhood, radical self-expression, possibility, rebellion, usurpation, discontent. That's that's what I'm attempting to consort with. It's very, very interesting because that's a that's a it seems to me a powerful and dangerous direction to go in. Have you had direct experience? Oh, free dreamlanders, here's some direct experience for you. We're taking a pause. Just for you, we'll be right back. We're talking to Mitch Horowitz, his website, MitchHorowitz.com, his new book, Uncertain Places, Essays on Occult and Outsider Experiences. Uh, well, so if you could respond to what I go ahead, just go ahead. Sure. Um, the experiments that I'm describing, I've been on, I would say, since probably about uh, New Year's of 2018. So, you know, give or take, you know, five years, six years. Um, I would say in that time, uh, my life in various and, and, and multiple ways has been a great deal better. Uh, I have felt a great deal more at home in myself, relaxed in myself, purposeful in my work, and above all else, uh, self-expressive. And so if that can be described as a palpable experience, that is, uh, that's the fruit from, from the tree that I've, I've eaten from. And of course, one has all kinds of inner experiences 
um, experiences that seem expansive of the intuition of the psyche. I've had those experiences and I feel it's for me been a very positive journey. Now, when you say experience, what did you do actually? What are you doing? Uh, uh, prayer, ritual, uh, deep, deep study and reading, trying to understand um, how this energy that I'm describing, which we call the satanic, has been expressed in different ways throughout the Western story uh, from, from deepest antiquity up through the Renaissance, the Romantic era uh, in our own time and trying to get a grasp of a different reading uh, and a different relationship than has been provided us uh, in our story up to this point. You know, it's interesting The in the pyramid text and the pyramid of Unus, the serpent is in us. The serpent yes. is in the spine. But when we, when it comes to, um, uh, we come to, I guess at some point there was a break between the, the people who became the wanderers, the Hebrews and the, and the other Egyptians over, over whether or not God was a multiple entities and deities or a single being. And like there was a reversal, which is if in the history of religion is very common when the, the, uh, the gods and the saints of one religion become the demons and uh, of the next. And the, the, story. the yeah. serpent left our bodies Yes, and is now outside. And you talk a lot about the serpent in your book. Can you tell us a little bit about your vision of what the serpent is and, and should it return to us and become part of us again? I think the serpent, I would say the serpent is self-expression. The place that I've come to is, you know, we all ask ourselves, what's the purpose of life? Why are we here? Uh, there are different answers to that question based upon different people's backgrounds. Some people have no answer, whatever, which I really honor. Uh, for me, self-expression is the serpent. Uh, that's, that's, that's the purpose of life for me. It doesn't exclude a person from other roles. There are all kinds of roles that we have to play and that we should play. There are debts that we owe people uh, uh, broadly defined, and those debts must be paid. There's reciprocity. But uh, self-expression for me is the, is the purpose of existence. And I think that's the force that the serpent represents. That's the force that came to life when uh, our parabolic ancestors ate from the, the so-called tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they were excluded from the garden. Childhood ended. Uh, you had to sweat. You had to labor. You had to go through pain. There was fratricide. And it may be that friction is the inevitable price of creativity. How, what an interesting statement. And I think back to your experience with the bull and the descriptions of the energy of the serpent in the spine in the pyramid text of the smaller serpents, the seven smaller serpents circling it and drawing the experience of life into the spine. Yes. Uh, they, of course, they became the, the uh, chakras later, but the, it, this yes. was long before that appeared. Uh, they were called the taniter, the little things, little serpents 
Now, so there's a there's almost a soul science implied mm-hmm. by all of that. In other words, someone knew something that we don't know anymore about the nature of reality in the world who created that bull and put it where it is under the Valley of the Kings. And I think probably that is also the secret of why the Valley of the Kings is where it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you speculate about what that may be, what that energy we've lost touch with may be? It's been said that there's greater truth in myth than in history, because myths contain primeval insights that humanity had of itself. And I can only imagine that the ancients had a much, much deeper understanding of and relationship with nature than we have today. Uh, And it's a trade-off. It's not as if one thing is intrinsically better than another thing. We have lots of things today uh, that they didn't have, including longer physical lifespans, including uh, the digital culture that's allowing you and I to speak from across the country right now and so forth and so on. But they had a deeper and fuller relationship to nature on which they depended for their daily survival. And I can only fathom that encrypted within our creation stories, both that which you were just referencing, uh, those found within the Vedic tradition, those found within deepest Abrahamic uh, antiquity, those found within the Hermetic tradition, uh, people were relating experiences, just as you've related in your books. And these experiences were so universal that they have got a hold on our psyches that rationalism cannot shake. And if that is not a scent trail of universal truth, then I don't know what is. That's a very interesting idea. A scent trail of universal, because they have such a hold on our psyches. You know, that's really powerful. Mitch, I've never thought of it that way before. It's really a good idea. Uh, how would we reconnect with these, with the gods, with these energies, should we, should we reverence Apollo and Isis? How do we go about that? I, 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 I would answer in the affirmative to that. Uh, it depends upon the individual's own orientation. We are fortunate enough in this generation to have fragments of antiquity that have come down to us. We don't have much, but we have enough we have enough threads to put together into a garment. And I personally would say that the individual seeker, uh, if moved, owes it to him or herself to look at the ancient pantheon and ask, where do I feel a sense of emotional resonance? These are emotional stories. You know, we we don't look at parabolic myth so that we can figure out how to how to, how to peel an onion. We know how to peel an onion and we have implements that can peel onions just fine. We look at parabolic myth as a mirror, as a mirror into our deepest psyche. So if you feel resonance with a deific figure from whatever tradition of whatever kind, I would say that's meaningful. You're speaking in a language at that point of emotion, of selfhood, of, of when I say psyche, I mean a compact between 
the intellect and emotion. That to me is what the psyche is. And if you feel a certain pull in that direction, if something exacts a pull on your magnetic center, to use a, a, a phrase uh, from Gurdjieff's philosophy, pay attention to that. Pay attention to that. That could be an extraordinary gift at that moment, not unlike the gift I was being given when somebody offered me the chance to lay hands on a base relief of a bull and see where it goes, see where it goes. Uh, we all know what what meditation is. We all know what prayer is. We all have a language within our individual psyche. Exercise it, experiment, see, read, gather in material, use these precious fragments that have come down to us from the ancients and pursue your relationship and see what transpires. You know, at the... In the first century BC, uh, AD, excuse me, uh, about a hundred AD, the the sun's uh, heat output changed. It became warmer. Mm -hmm. uh, the sun began to emit more energy, which it it, it cycles. And uh, this uh, and it, later it would do the opposite, and mm -hmm. we would have the um, the little uh, ice age of the Middle Ages, but. When that happened, it caused drought across the world. And in fact, it's the same thing that's happening now, but for different reasons now. Uh, it caused, um, and the Mediterranean infrastructure, which is now a very big population, suddenly people didn't have enough to eat. Their immune systems became stressed. There was a lot of circulation among people and a series of pandemics started. So they had a combination of famine and pandemics. And by the time another 300 years had passed, they were literally hammering the statues of the gods to pieces and pulling the temples down because they felt like the gods had literally turned against them. So what is this relation? That's why we ended up where we are with basically a, a, a two deities, uh, uh, God the Father and God the Son. Uh, 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 and I don't want to go into the complexities of that now because that's not what we're talking about. But how do the gods actually relate to nature? And I, I get back to the moment with the bull, which I think is so important, because they do. You you put your hands right on it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yourself, mm -hmm. and you felt that energy. Mm -hmm. So see if you can explore this. I don't expect a simple answer to the question. How do the gods relate to nature? It seems to me that we exist under a great complexity of laws and forces. Uh, that's one of the reasons why, although I'm very interested in the mind power thesis, which you and I have talked about before, I don't subscribe. I don't like to use language like law of attraction and things like that because it implies the existence of one overall mental super law. And while intelligence, the psyche, consciousness may be the ultimate arbiter of reality, we live in a certain sphere of existence that Hermeticists saw creation is emanating out into multiple spheres. We occupy a sphere of existence where we suffer many different laws and forces, including physical decline, including mortality, including natural disasters and things, things of that form. That is just our situation, it seems to me. Uh, that situation may change, 
as the individual undergoes different processes, perhaps eternal recurrence or what is popularly called reincarnation. Perhaps we move more towards the center of the source of, of creation, which the Hermeticist saw as noose or great intellect. And perhaps as we move more towards that center, we are bound by fewer laws and forces. That has a modern correlate in the philosophy of Gurji, for example, which, which actually comports well with the hermetic worldview. But the world that we live in is one in which are there, are there accidents? Is there happenstance? Are there catastrophes? Yes, yes, I believe to all that because we just simply live in a sphere where physical phenomena, some of which you just described, is part of what we suffer, is part of what we experience, is part of what we, what we, what, what defines this stage of life that we find ourselves in. And I don't necessarily think that those things come from either uh, thought or deific decree so much as that's the name of the game in terms of the reality that we occupy. And yet we also get glimpses of other realities, these glimpses may be found in particle phenomena. These glimpses may be found in uh, clinical evidence of ESP or precognition. These glimpses may be found in uh, uh, abduction testimony or the encountering of visitors. These glimpses occur in all kinds of ways and are as concretely real and as measurable as my blood pressure. But they are not constant. They are exceptions. So we refer to them as anomalies. So there is some other form of life, which you might call a cult, which you might call interdimensional, which maybe is extraterrestrial. There are other forms of life. But the name of the game that we have to live under conscripts us to a lot of different laws and forces. And I don't think those things are by some kind of decree. I think they're they're just... They're, the reality of the concentric circle we find ourselves in. You know, you're so interesting that I am in danger of losing my train of thought, my questions, because I, my mind goes so many different places while you're talking. It's wonderful, Mitch. Free Dreamlanders, what's not so wonderful is your part of this is ended. We're ending for you. But subscribers, no, no, we're keeping on and we're going way deeper uh, because there's lots of depth to go into here. We're going to be talking about quantum physics. We're going to be talking about Wicca. We're, we're going to be talking about, oh my gosh, I don't know what will come out of Mitch next. His book, Uncertain Places. Get involved with him. Go to MitchHorowitz.com. It's a very beautiful and extraordinary website like everything else about this remarkable man free dreamlanders thank you so much for being with us as always on dreamland okay mitch now i want to go down on a completely different path gosh i'm having fun i hope you are too oh absolutely yeah 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 all right when i say and i think i'm pronouncing it right aluxes yeah what do you think what do you want to talk about now? Let's go together down to the jungles of Belize. Yeah. And you're, you're coming to a, a beautiful 
resort deep in the jungle in an old taxi cab clanking along a rough, rough road, and you're told something. Right. What happens then? I was staying in the highlands of Belize, and uh, the taxi driver who was bringing us to our destination had to drive up a mountain uh, on an unpaved road. And and it was it was it was bumpy and, and rumbling and rattling. And he said to us, as soon as I drop you guys off, I'm going to turn around and, and speed out of here because there are these little men who live in the woods in these foothills. And if you see one of them, you'll be so frightened that your voice will be frozen in your throat. You won't even be able to speak. And I thought he was just teasing us and playing scared the tourist and so on. And the next day, my travel companion and I were, were, were canoeing uh, down this very narrow snaking river. And there were rock faces rising on either side of us. And I began complaining about how this cab driver was just trying to frighten us. And of course, one of the legends or the lore, I should say, that surrounds uh, Alushas or little men, and you find this in Ireland, you find this in Central America, you find this in Africa, is that if you talk about them, uh, they they appear. And we were canoeing through this very deadly quiet canyon, and suddenly, uh, and very suddenly, a boulder came uh, rolling down the hill and crashed into the water just in front of our canoe, about 12 feet in front of the canoe or so. And I thought, well, okay, well, I'd, I'd better shut up. I'd better mind my manners. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't see one of them, but that was that was the phenomena that we experienced. We uh, had on Dreamland, one of our most famous shows is with a man called Alan Lammers, who had an encounter with 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 them in um, in uh uh, on the island of Sulawesi in mm-hmm. Indonesia. And it was a m- very intense experience for him. And uh, Laurie Barnes, who used to be Anne's secretary, was riding in a, a, a trap through the Vale of Tralee one time. And there was a little man sitting along a stream blowing, a, a, make, playing a flute. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the trap saw him. And at first she thought, well, it's it's some kind of tourist thing. But then she realized, no, this is real. Yeah. And yeah. so she said to the man running the trap, she said, uh, is that a leprechaun? And he said, we don't talk about them. We don't talk about them. Yeah, yeah you'll find that in Ireland today. I think I opened the book with a line that there was a critic who wrote of me, uh, Horowitz is an okay historian, but the guy believes in leprechauns for Christ's sakes, and, yeah. which I plead guilty. Yes. Right. The guy well, believes I do in too, leprechauns. Because I, yes. I, I don't just believe in I'll tell you another story about them. That's, you know, I was at a friend's house up in Malibu, Lee McCloskey, who's a... Oh, sure. He's terrific. You know Lee. He's, he's a legendary person. He's been on the show. And uh, so we were there and we were sitting out in his garden, a bunch of us. And I was talking about the hybrids, the human, whatever hybrids or the semi-human people or whatever they are. I don't know. And I was kvetching about them because they come around here, this apartment occasionally. And they're, they annoy me, annoy me in a lot of ways. Um, my listeners know about the explosions and so forth. We just had one a few days ago. I haven't, I guess I, yeah, I, I'm, I, it's posted on YouTube at this point, I guess. 
but it has something to do with them. Anyway, I was complaining about them. And when the evening was over, there were three Priuses. Three of us had Priuses parked outside. There were other cars. The two of the three hybrids had had their electronics fried. Mine and another guy's. We each had to pay $500 to get them fixed. And you got, and you turned it on. You got this notice say, you cannot drive more than 30 miles an hour. You must take the car. You must drive as short, short a distance as possible and take the car to the dealer immediately. Hmm. And, uh, the other guy was furious. He wanted me to pay for his car repairs. <laughs> I, don't that's what judge. Yeah. I talked about them. Yeah. And they came. Yeah. And yeah. they were pissed off. Yeah, yeah. So they're real. Right. One of the uh, things I, I, you know, I like these little synchronicities. Uh, Lee McCluskey, who's a great artist, played a character named Mitch on Dallas, which I always... Yeah, but that's right, he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Just right. A little yeah. wink, you know, a little wink. That's funny. Yeah, you come out, come, when next time you're out here, you let us know and come and visit with, you know, we have... Meetings on uh, Tuesdays and Thursday nights at Lee's still. Uh, mm-hmm. right? talking about uh, the uh, uh, on Tuesday nights we're exploring this wonderful 800-page biography of Rainier Maria Rilke, and on Thursday we're deep into her medica, so it's intense. Oh, that's great! That's wonderful. Oh, you should definitely sit in. I would like that. Would yeah. Like that. Okay. Now let's go on down the road. Uh, and I think, gosh, this is so much fun. I, I've got so many questions. We're not gonna, we're never gonna get finished, but we're gonna, we're gonna do as much as we possibly uh, can. You know, I think before I get into Schrodinger's cat and the, and the, and and the importance of the indeterminate in all of this, let's talk about the rise of Wicca. Mm. Uh, because this is a fascinating subject and you you deal with it in the book and you've talked about it elsewhere as well. Now, something is changing in our world because, yeah. you know, there's a, there, there, there are people into the fairy lore and the fairy faith again. There are people into Wicca. Anne was big. She was real interested. She wasn't a Wiccan, but she was interested in Wicca. And Margot Adler was one of our best friends, the author of uh, Drawing Down the Moon, the Mm -hmm. great book of modern witchcraft. One of them. There's a lot of others. Uh, uh, So tell us about a little bit about your vision of why Wicca is coming back and what that means. It's so interesting. You know, we, we, we always look for symmetry as to how ideas go viral. You know, a guy named Kenneth Arnold spots flying discs and suddenly everybody's spotting flying discs. You know, what, what, what makes an idea go viral? And sometimes one human event can trip so much. Uh, until very recently, it was still against the law in Great Britain to be a practicing witch. And I think it was in the year 1951 that the Witchcraft Act was finally repealed uh, in Great Britain, thanks to the efforts of people who presided over spiritualist churches or metaphysical churches where they practiced seances and talking to the dead, to put it colloquially, and so on. And so shortly after the Witchcraft Act was was very belatedly appeal, uh, repealed, um, through that opening, stepped a variety of people. They had predecessors, they had thought ancestors, uh, but one of them, of course, was the great Gerald Gardner, who wrote a book called Modern Witchcraft, which came out in 1954, 1955. 
uh, for, published first in England, later in the United States. And Gardner made the contention, as several others did before him, including uh, the anthropologist Margaret Murray uh, and others as well, that a retention of nature-based worship had survived in the British Isles. And Gardner revived uh, the Middle English term uh, Wicca, which he spelled uh, W-I-C-A, we usually spell it with two C's, which he described as an, uh, a Middle English term for clever folk. And these were people who covertly uh, continued to practice and, and nurture the ancient nature-based religions. And he made the contention uh, as a folklorist and as a seeker that he had been part of these prohibited covens uh, and said, in fact, that there was one coven that met uh, in the forest in southern England during the Second World War and would attempt to cast spells against Adolf Hitler. And so Gardner created a anthropological folklorist seeker's account of the survival of this ancient nature-based faith in Britain. And this cracked open doors around the world where people started either searching for or recreating uh, vestiges of the ancient nature-based faiths. And this, of course, became a modern witchcraft. And there is a lot of debate over the degree to which contemporary witchcraft is a retention or is a recreation. Uh, and I think it's, it's probably both. Because something is old doesn't mean that it's true. Because something is new or novel doesn't mean that it's false. Uh, the story of religions is one of uh, syncretism, adaptation, novelty. Um, what is the Kabbalion other than a modern novel reinterpretation of Hermeticism? I don't think we should be afraid of new religious ideas. I don't think we should be afraid of novelty. I don't think we should be afraid of conceding that we are taking threads and, and weaving other things within them. Uh, familiarity and antiquity doesn't necessarily uh, connote truth, just as novelty and newness doesn't necessarily connote um, shallowness or fickleness or, or falsehood. And so I think within uh, the modern rebirth of witchcraft, which takes many different forms, we have an old new faith that has on many uh, continents become uh, one of the fastest growing religions in the world. It's a force on the modern scene, and it's something that would have been hard to imagine in the middle of the 20th century, but here we are in another uncertain place. You know, folks, this book has got so it just, I'm just going to read a few of the chapter headings. <laughs> um, choose your own reality. Is your mind a technology for utopia, which we're going to be talking about in a minute. Anarchic magic, uh, suffering and the limits of magic. Uh, New Age and Gnosticism, uh, the war on witches, and when we're, I, I would like to talk about maybe right now is how I learned to stop worrying and love the Illuminati. Right. Now we're <laughs> going to make the Satanism stuff sound tame, you know. So, yeah, right. right. Let's go, man, because right. is, we're going all the way today, folks. You so know, about I, the Illuminati. I, I write about the Illuminati in the book. I'm the Illuminati was a real historical group. 
that was founded in Bavaria in 1776 uh, that existed for about eight or nine years. They were, um, to put it in the plainest terms, a kind of renegade Freemasonic organization that believed in a lot of the same values of, say, a Thomas Paine, a separation of church and state, um, stripping uh, people of aristocratic or clerical privileges, especially based upon bloodline, uh, a, a greater social polity, a, a more just legal system. And they also were deeply interested in reviving ancient uh, Greek, Egyptian, and Persian religious rites. They were not part of Freemasonry because their founder, Adam Weishaupt, felt that Masonry itself was at that time too frequently a function of privilege. Uh, lodges were financially out of reach to a lot of people. And he felt that uh, Freemasonry as it existed then in Europe was uh, too passive in cooperating with the powers that be, albeit also conducting itself in a covert way. And he wanted, he wanted a revolution. He wanted a revolution uh, 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 generations before the French Revolution uh, broke out. He wanted a revolution contemporaneous with the American Revolution. And the Bavarian government, uh, as I detail in the book, brutally, brutally cracked down on uh, the Illuminati in a variety of ways. And we really have no scent trail for their existence after 1790. And yet, after the advent of the French Revolution, uh, after the advent of other upheavals in Europe, including the dissolution of the Vatican as its own nation state, um, the idea of a kind of mythical Illuminati got reborn and has circulated wildly in our own time to the point where that term is almost a catchphrase for maleficent or hidden unseen forces. And anyone who wants to consort with unseen forces need go no further than their own health insurance carrier. I don't know why we think we need some sort of a mythical stand-in. Um, I do think that the original Illuminati, the Bavarian Illuminati, had contained within it values uh, uh, that were that were of of extraordinary radicalism for the day and should be appreciated in light of what these people were attempting to do. Um, and and yet we as a culture have seized upon some of the early conspiracist conceptions of the Illuminati and used that term as a kind of straw man for talking about power. And I think that's a huge mistake because it's too much of a closed circuit, um, I think, almost purposeful distraction from the real issues and problems that we as a community face with the abuse of power within our own society today. And those are gravely, gravely serious issues. There are things that are perpetrated against the citizen in American society that are long overdue for radical makeover, including, in my estimation, uh, the nature and practice of uh, private health insurers who have subjected uh, people in this country to unbelievable amounts of stress and financial disability. And 
it's astonishing to me that we as a public have been able to get past that. I want to talk about that, whether one agrees or disagrees with me. I don't want to talk about a mythical group that actually I think had in its historical existence a tremendous amount that I really greatly uh, admire and that has been remade as a kind of epithet or curse word uh, in our own time. And I think it just distracts us from real abuses of power. Yeah, that that may be true, uh, and it does. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the, the fringe of the conspiracy conspiracy world is is a distraction, and it's designed to discredit the real, the real issues, the real conspiracies, which are certainly out there. And one of them is the is is the uh, separation on not just this issue, but on so many different other issues of us from any kind of food for our souls, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. any kind of food for our souls. And, you know, this this is why uh, Wicca is under attack. It's, it's why uh, all of these things, anything that, that might enrich the human soul is under attack. Uh, And and, I'd like to add something to that, if I may. Please do. Um, I really think it behooves us as seekers to ask how how am I participating in that? Because we do participate in it as individuals. You know, we always like to think in terms of these power centers that impose things on us from above. And that's true. That's true. But I would say to your listeners and I would say to myself, every time someone throws a stone, over social media, every time you insult someone, every time you ask a rhetorical question, anytime you use cruel sarcasm, anytime you debase someone, you are participating in an anger economy that is propping up exactly the things that you may disdain on a macro level. And I am, and you, you know, you and I have talked about this before. If we as individuals, and it does fall to us as individuals, because no big daddy is going to come in and take care of it for us. If we as individuals do not get a handle on the manner in which we debase one another on a constant basis over social media, we as a human community will not make it. There's an expression that circulates, Twitter is not real life. I, I don't understand that at all. Of course, Twitter is real life. We spend more time on social media than we do with people we profess to love. And that is a fact. Most of our social lives, especially coming out of the lockdown, but it didn't take the lockdown entirely, are spent on social media. The way that you are acting, the way that I am acting on social media, often from behind the anonymity of user handles, uh, is a determinant of the human situation as much as anything else. And we as individuals have got to take some personal responsibility for that. Uh, You can be as angry as you want at Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos or whomever, but Big Daddy is not going to come and save us. And we as motivated, sensitive, thoughtful individuals have got to stop participating in this anger economy. Yeah, I agree with you entirely because it is that. It's an economy. It's designed to make us angry and to get clicks going. It is literally exactly correct. it, It is. If if there's such a thing as is is a demonic presence in this world, it is th- that commercialization of our negative emotions. Perfectly it, put, beautifully put, terrible, beautifully put, and it's it's enthralling. You know, we enjoy it. If right. people weren't 
enjoying it, they wouldn't be participating in it. And we have to watch for that prurient thrill that we get at seeing another person humiliated. And the individual has decisions to make at every instant of whether to participate or not participate. Well, if you don't participate, folks, I believe me, you will feel become to feel a beauty inside yourself you didn't even know was there before you will stand taller people always ask me you know i'm unhappy what should i do about my life my relationships are unsatisfying desist from trash talk for one hour and see if you don't stand taller doesn't mean becoming a monk i'm not saying leave social media i'm on social media all day long like everybody else but we you are big time on on twitter (laughs) for sure we have the capacity within ourselves not to humiliate other people use it use it Use it. Okay, we're coming up on the last few minutes we have of Mitch's time. Uh, and I'd like to talk about indeterminacy, Schrodinger's cat, and the core mystery of being. We Give us three minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, the, the Schrodinger's cat experiment is as radical sounding today as it was when, when the physicist Erwin Schrodinger de- devised it in 1935. It's simply this. Schrodinger wanted to force quantum physicists to face the surreality of their own data. And he devised a thought experiment that we call Schrodinger's cat that can be put this way. We know from 90 some odd years of experiments in quantum mechanics that a subatomic particle occupies an infinite number of places. We call it a wave state until an observer takes a measurement. It only occupies a local place. It only assumes locality or what we experience as reality when it collapses from a wave state to a particle state, which occurs only when a sentient observer takes a measurement, whether that's an individual or whether that's an automatic device like a photometer, doesn't matter. No measurement, no particle, no measurement, no settled reality. So Schrodinger said, what if you were to take a cat and put around its collar a diabolical device that contains a poison that would be tripped when it's exposed to a single atom. So put the cat in one of two boxes and direct an atom at the boxes. Now, go open the boxes to check on the cat. Is the cat dead or alive? Well, it sounds so simple. If the atom went into the empty box, the cat is alive. If the atom went into the box where the cat with the collar with the poisonous devices, then the device was tripped and the cat is dead. And Schrodinger said, exactly wrong, exactly wrong. Because in fact, data from quantum mechanics requires that at one time, that atom was in a wave state and it occupied both boxes until you, the observer, took a measurement by opening one of the boxes. So you would have to allow for the fact that there's a dead, alive cat. It violates all laws of reality. We, we, we live in a binary world. There's not a dead, alive cat. There's not multiple Whitleys. There's one Whitley that I'm looking at. And yet Schrodinger would say, that is not what reality is, according to the laws dictated to us by quantum mechanics. Several years later, a physicist named Hugh Everett and some of his students made the observation, not only is Schrodinger right, that you would have to account for the existence of a dead, alive cat violating all Newtonian conceptions of reality, but but let's say instead of going to check right away on the cat, you waited eight hours. You would actually now find a cat that was hungry because it had been cooped up in a box for eight hours. So you have a, a dead cat, you have an alive cat for which you have now created an entire past narrative. 
because there are infinite realities playing out based on when you, the observer, make or don't make a measurement. And so you've thus uncovered an entire life's narrative for this cat based on the timing at which you decided to take your measurement or not. And this developed into what's called the many worlds theory, which postulates that there are infinite outcomes and realities coexistent all at once. Logic requires it. And this comports with what we began uh, the episode talking about, which is what we call interdimensionality. Interdimensionality sounds like something that's so far out, that's so science fictive. But is it? Is it? Because the Schrodinger's cat experiment and the many worlds interpretation dictate to us the existence of infinite outcomes coexisting all at once as part of one whole, which we as individuals may experience based upon perception, observation, expectation, measurement, measurement. What else are our senses but biological devices of measurement? We smell, we touch, we taste, we feel, we detect distance. They're tools of measurement. And it could be that we as five sensory beings, most of the time, require a sense of linearity, a sense of orderliness, a sense of singular yeah. existence in order to navigate through life. I, at this moment, couldn't take in an infinite number of Whitleys. I can only take in one Whitley. But that doesn't mean that there aren't an infinite number of Whitleys living out all kinds of circumstances uh, coexistently. And so this is where the UFO thesis, questions of occultism, questions of precognition, anomalous experiences, these things all start to fold into, into one dynamic and extraordinary whole that we may experience in glimpses. You know, folks, I think we're going to conclude this way. We think of quantum indeterminacy as something in the, in the world of the very, very small, the quanta, the smallest possible. And But I can show you in two minutes that it has to do with your life completely right now. There's a thought experiment created by a philosopher called Edmund Gettier, uh, called the cow problem. A farmer has a cow in a field. He's, he's sequestered the cow in a field alone because he's concerned about the cow's health. In the field, it's a black and white Holstein. In the field, there is a tree and there's a little hollow. If the cow happens to wander into the hollow, and only then the cow will be invisible to the farmer. The farmer is glant working in his barn and glancing at the cow from time to time and seeing the cow is fine. While he's working in his barn, a piece of black and white paper blows into the field and gets caught under the tree. The cow, meanwhile, wanders into the hollow. Cow is fine. He looks in the field, sees the paper, and thinks to himself, oh, good, my cow is still fine. He's both right and wrong at the same time, and quantum indeterminacy has arrived in your daily life because... This is where we are, and I would like to end with something all of you know, but you can't hear it enough, and it goes back to this business of anger and all of those things and the, the battle of beliefs and the attacks on the Wiccans and all of that stuff that we've been discussing. From Ann Streber, the human species is too young to have beliefs. 
What we need are good questions, and this man is a master of good questions. Mitch, thank you for being with us on Dreamland. His book, Uncertain Places, his website, MitchHorowitz.com. Thank you so much, Whitley. Pleasure to be here. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure, Mitch. Thank you. And I'm glad you brought Ann in. Uh, What a beautiful, beautiful statement. We're too young to have beliefs. Yeah, we are. And isn't that a fun thing? We should really enjoy it while we can. Yes, yes. And and what a wonderful invitation to your listeners, you know. Right, exactly. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much. And Dreamland, keep on keeping on, folks. Uh, We're doing something here. This is a special and wonderful place, and it's that is because you are here. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.